So, hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nucleus Investment Insights. And today, uh, our, uh, our show is entitled The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Uh, I won't uh, go into it any further. I think we'll just, uh, we'll leave it to, um, <laughs> we'll leave it to uh, your imagination. Though. We'll fill in those, uh, those blanks very shortly. So, uh, I'll uh, just start before we jump into the agenda by uh, welcoming back our uh, Chief Strategist and our very own uh, horseman, David Llewellyn-Smith. Hello, David. Hi, Welcome. Tim. That, that tone of voice is far too cheerful for this potty. <laughs> True. I've got to try and brighten it somehow. And we've also got our Head of Investments, Damien Klassen, with us today. G'day, Damien. Hi, Tim. Fantastic. Okay, so let's roll into the agenda. Um, and so the four horsemen of the apocalypse in uh, today, today's scenario uh, is namely, or number one, Brexit. We'll then be looking at number two, the trade war. Following up with number three, Hong Kong, and finishing off with a, a, a perennial topic, I guess, in uh, number four, in oil as well. They'll then be uh, finishing on the apocalypse being the global recession, not giving too much away, I hope, there. Uh, and then, of course, rounding out with uh, an investment outlook and how we incorporate these themes every day in the MB Fund and Nucleus Wealth portfolios. So with no further ado, let's jump into it. Uh, horseman number one, we're kicking off with Brexit. Who'd like to begin? I'll have a crack at that one day. Yeah, sure. So, look, we've subtitled that, uh, you know, letting inertia do the dirty work. And, and our, our take is that, um, you know, we've seen, we've seen over the last uh, couple of days, we've, we've had uh, Boris Johnson come out and, and prorogue the, the parliament. So, basically, trying to, trying to cut down the number of days in, in which they had. And, and there's lots of machinations going on on, on all sides trying to, uh, Trying to work out how they can either delay it or or, or, or speed it up or, or whatever the uh, your your current preference is, but but our take is that we've got this deadline of thirty first of October, which is basically a um, you know if, if if nothing's been agreed upon, then there's a hard Brexit as of that date, and our view is that uh, Boris and his cohorts are basically um, going to try and limit what can be done with the with a view that. Um, put some appearances as, as to what they're, they're trying to work towards is. We're trying to help and we, we really want to get a good result um, with the effect of, <clears throat> oh, well, we hit 31st. Oh, well, it wasn't done. Oh, we did everything we could and, and here we go. Hard Brexit, guys. You know, strap in is sort of our, our take. David, I don't know if you've got any, any different takes on that. No, I agree with that completely. I mean, I think the fundamental driver is simply um, the Tory party's being eaten by Nigel Farage. So... You know, they really need to find a way of, of looking like they'll get Brexit done in some guiltless way. Yeah, and, and that sort of makes means that um, they've, they've got to avoid at all costs an election because otherwise they'll get decimated. An election without Brexit being resolved in one way or the other, they'll get decimated. Yep. And so um, there's uh, yeah, the Labor Party's trying to... The Labor Party there is, is trying to... Um, trying to negotiate with people from, from both sides to, to try and... Um, work out a, a more reasonable than a hard Brexit, but their take is at the moment is that you know he'll run a caretaker government until um, until such time as elections can come, and so that's going to be uh, you know that sort of gets rid of anyone flipping sides, I guess, or, or you'd think that gets rid of most people who would think about flipping side, unless they were particularly um, uh, keen on remaining and and uh, very public minded, I guess. If you're only mildly public-minded, then uh, you'd probably stick with stick with your party. Mm. Yep. Uh, so the, the the options from here, um, hard Brexit looks quite likely. Um, a negotiated Brexit, I mean, there is a chance that um, you'll see something, uh, maybe the, the EU give a little bit away to, because to, I think they probably see the, the writing on the wall as well and, and come up to come up with a, 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 a gentler Brexit because I think a, a hard Brexit has issues for the, the EU as well as um, as Europe as as well as the UK. It's not a it's not a one way street. And and by that do you mean um, looking then at a Fraxit and a Grexit and a you know, no, like no, no, a, no, just is mean it a that, tipping point or uh, well I mean that's that's further down the track. Uh, Italy is the next um, is the next issue. Uh, I think the the biggest issue is in terms of um, is that there's going to be disruption to businesses. And disruption to businesses doesn't necessarily doesn't just mean that UK businesses get disrupted. It's the it's the European ones that had supply chains and and all these other mm. um, you know uh, offices in London and, and all the, the the there's a multitude of issues that that need to be done. Um, I think there there is a, a a silver lining in that I think most companies have had enough time now to to certainly 
consider what was happening. Mm-hmm. I think there was a, you know, if, if, if the day after the referendum you, you had a Brexit, it would have been chaos. Yep. So I think there will be considerably less chaos because um, this, you sh- as a companies, you should have been been looking at it. And I believe most ma- major companies anyway have, have sort of gone through the processes of what would it look like, what would it mean for us. Mm. And so, um, yeah, so so... I guess it won't be as bad as a surprise, but um, there, there will certainly be short-term negatives yep. uh, for, the, for the economy. We think longer term, especially if the pound gets gets hit particularly hard, that it is a positive. And maybe you want to talk, David, a little bit about the, the effects of a hard Brexit? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, there is a little bit of Y2K about mm. it for the reasons you've described, mm. um, but the impacts will probably... Uh, still be materially negative. And um, what David means by Y2K is, is our analogy there is the Y2K bug um, was back in 2000 and there was this huge um, process leading up to it where everyone had to make their computers ready for, for Y2K bug. Otherwise, you know, planes would be falling out of the sky and toasters would stop working and, and all these other sort of factors that, that people had coming coming into that. Most of the, a lot of that was scare, mm. but there was a, a significant amount of truth to it, and the fact that it turned into such a big scare campaign meant that the, the problems that might have slipped by without a big scare campaign mm. were, were largely resolved. Yep, yep. and so um, yeah, we so so we think Brexit is to a certain extent similar. I mean, we do think though there there is going to be some short term negative, regardless of whether there is, and yeah. and the problem is that it's landing on a European economy that's already basically in recession. At least mm. the core is. Yep. Germany is in recession, um, and a lot of other countries within the EU are following it down. Uh, so the last thing they need right now is a, a little external shock to shake business up even more. So it's going to make this European recession worse. Uh, and uh, so you know that's a very large component of the global economy that is going to sink in 2020, even further than it has already. Um, I mean, how far... It goes down in terms of hard Brexit itself. I mean, you'd really need to see some contagion of some sort into financial markets. Mm. Um, difficult to know whether that's going to happen. You, you would expect most people to have um, neutralised any real leverage or trade to a hard Brexit, mm. um, but you just never know when these things happen and somebody might be, uh, you know, long the wrong bond or you know, carrying too much junk in some way or whatever it is and, and um, trigger some, some kind of debt event, but that seems, a little, you know, should have been neutralised. Um, so the main impacts are likely to be just a hit to productivity, um, a further slowing in the European economy, and that's going to weigh at the margin on the global economy. Mm, okay. Yeah, in terms of a broader uh, EU, bre- EU breakup, I think the effect, how bad um, things get in, in the UK is probably going to be correlate pretty directly, and so if you get a a short, relatively sharp recession, the the currency takes most of the the pain, and, and then you actually see the UK economy start to expand off a, a lot off a lower base. Um, people will pretty quickly forget the the short, sharp bit, and especially in in Europe and sorry, especially in in places like Italy where there is a significant amount of people who are looking for um, who are looking for something to change. Mm. Um, you could easily, yeah, you could easily see that then be the yes. trigger for the next country and the next country. And, yeah. and the, long, the longer-term implications for Europe are, are negative on a successful Brexit. Mm, yeah. Right. Yep. Or, or even just that's a Brexit right. that's, yeah, short-term. As long as it's short-term, as long as the, yep. the bad part is short-term and the yep. successful part is, is the longer term. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's a big bit, isn't it, that the EU needs to make sure that this looks like a bad a bad example, a bad thing to do, because otherwise they might have a run on their hands. Yeah. Is that... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah. And Italy's the obvious candidate with its, its uh, you know, anti-Euro parties that are, are controlling the government now. Mm. They're, they're sort of all jostling for power and it's, it's collapsed and is reforming in a different shape, but they're still all Eurosceptic. Yep. Uh, and so it's, it's been, you know, had, had its growth constrained for a very long time by you know, fiscal rules coming out of Brussels. Uh, it's got a lot of external debt as a result. And and so, you know, uh, Italy with its own currency um, that's much lower than the euro mm. would be growing a lot more strongly. Yep. yep. Yeah, very good. 
Yeah, Horseman 2. Okay, Horseman 2. So we'll jump across now to the trade war. And we've got a terrific chart up here on um, the percent of US imports from China. And for those uh, that are listening in, of course, there will be the, the chart pack available in a link in the show notes, just a, a reminder there. Um, who'd like to kick off? Uh, the... Yeah, so, so basically the chart's showing, we, you know, we started in the, back in the uh, uh, 80s and 90s at sort of about 30 to 40% uh, of, of Chinese uh, imports had some sort of trade protection on it that fell to to about eight percent in in 2017 uh, where we hit 50 percent um, about a year ago and that's about to jump again so that's but it's been relatively steady for the last year mm. and that's about to jump again um, September 1 and then there's another uh, another batch coming through uh, before Christmas which pretty much brings it up to all 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 imports from China <laughs> yeah that's right and then and then you start talking about how much you know and, and I think Every time um, uh, Trump jumps on his Twitter account, the amounts increase or, or, or decrease or, mm. or get delayed. But but it's certainly certainly a lot, and, and it's not getting doesn't seem to be getting. Um, this, the the intensity is is increasing yep. in terms of what's happening, and so that's worth. Uh, we what, so what we thought is we just jump back to uh, goals and just comparing what what China's trying to get out of this versus what's uh, the US is trying to get out of it. And I might click back to David to. Discuss some of those. Sure. Um, so, <clears throat> I mean, the key driver uh, is, I mean, basically we see this as a kind of hegemonic struggle as much as it is a trade war. So key goal for the US is preserving its tech leadership. Uh, this is where you get to the issues of, of uh, you know, IP theft uh, and unfair trade rules requiring, you know, the passing of intellectual property to local Chinese, etc., for access to their market. Uh, and, you know, obviously China on the flip side of that is trying to, to gain tech leadership. Now, there's, there's a key reason for China looking to do that, and that is that its present growth model is running out of petrol. Mm. Um, its development model to this point has been very investment-led mm. uh, and involves, you know, a lot of sort of misallocated capital into building. And that, that's kind of running out of rope for them. And the way out of that, if you persist with that for too long, what happens is your productivity dies uh, and your income growth starts to, to sort of diminish. You end up in what is called the middle income trap. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way out of that is to move up the value chain. So you start to value add to all of your manufacturing sectors and service sectors. You do that through, in part through tech leadership. So for this, this is about, for China, this is actually about transitioning to a higher value add, higher income um, consumer led model of growth and that would you know in theory takes it beyond the middle income trap and Mm. then at that point it's you know developing sort of rich developed economy status and that gives you obviously power more power as well a higher powered economy so you know the flip side of that for the us of course is capping chinese move up this value chain both to preserve its own leadership in economic terms but also again in strategic terms and, and hegemonic power um, so it's a bigger story than just trade. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, and, and, so, and so as you can see on those ones, I guess what we're trying to compare and contrast here is uh, US wants one thing, China wants something that's pretty much diametrically opposite. Mm. Um, there's not a lot of room for negotiation on, on that front. Yeah, that's right. Um, so then, there, you know, we've you know, got this question over um, how these various goals are, are, are being approached tactically. You know, the U.S. is is sort of renegotiating various alliances. Um, you know, it's got a very unilateral approach at the, at the moment under Trump, which, you know, some argue is, is actually a problem for its objectives because you could, you know, be more successful if you lined up other economies, you know, with your goals. And that's an opportunity for China to build an alliance network against that. It, by and large, um, <clears throat> the U.S. alliance network has been holding up even if it's been undermined and China has failed pretty much to wedge anybody other than people who are or economies and countries that are kind of already at satellites. You could argue Australia is one of those. <laughs> I was going to say I was going to say Iran, but I'm... <laughs> yeah, certainly Iran, but possibly yeah. Australia. <laughs> and part of that is uh, so China went with its one belt one road initiative, which was sort of trying to roll out a lot of infrastructure and using that as a bit of cover for you know we, we're going to spend all this money in these countries and and that will help. Um, you know, grow our links together, and and also, um, I guess, expand China's sphere of influence. But 
Uh, and while that sounded very good at the initial stages to a lot of countries, I think there's been a number of countries now that have shown up where, where um, you know, spending, throwing lots of money at infrastructure products in, in developing countries rarely works out that well. Mm. And uh, they're, they're running into debt problems and China's calling in on the debt and, and taking over some of the you know, strategic ports and... and, and um, surprise, key, surprise. <laughs> yeah, key infrastructure. And so that's obviously making, a, making an issue for more people saying, well, okay, well, what... This money, which seemed great, does actually come with strings attached, mm. and now we're actually seeing what some of the strings are. Yep, yep. So, just those last couple of points again. It's about a hegemonic struggle, you know, democracy, democracy versus communist power, um, uniting, you know, internal um, polities versus external threats yeah. for political gain. And, and so uh, that's that's important, I think, for both countries. In, in insofar as uh, having an external threat for Trump is is quite is quite positive in terms of voting. Yeah, so so it's, it's akin to a war, almost, really, isn't it? In yeah. A way? yeah. <laughs> you want if you you can unite your your population behind you know here here is a common enemy and I get to stand up and be a strong leader and and you mm. know, shake my Twitter account at people and tell them what what I'm going to do. Um, that tends to be a vote winner. Whether whether Trump mm. manages. I, to I think vote. that I think that holds even if the U.S. economy starts to slide badly. Mm. Yes. And I think that that sentiment, in fact, might even intensify. As, as you feel pain. Mm. Uh, You've got someone to blame. <laughs> yeah, you need someone to blame. I mean, I'd use the analogy of George W. Bush when uh, he ran for his second term and the wars in the Middle East were going quite poorly. But, you know, when you get into those moments of nationalist spirit, mm. um, changing horses halfway through a strategy doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense unless mm. the horse is literally dying before your eyes. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, that's not a difficult political play. Yeah, sure. I guess is the point. Yeah, and China has the same issue in that um, yep. you know, Xi has appointed himself emperor for life, and that uh, with it comes the, the issues that when things start going wrong, then if you're the guy who has all the power, then, yep. then you start getting the blame. And so he's he's seeing that effect come through now. He sort of consolidated his his power network, and uh, the Chinese economy is slowing, and he's sitting and. More so because of the the trade war, but there's other factors going on as well. And so, for him to have an external enemy to to unite the citizens against is 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 very important because he knows his economy is going to keep slowing. Mm. And so if he can, yeah, yeah. That, I think that, it, that goes to the sort of deal with the devil that the Communist Party did, mm. you know, with its people in terms of, you know, shoring up its own power, limiting their freedoms, but in return offering. You know, prosperity, mm. and that's an interesting point because I guess essentially with the US putting these tariffs on, all they're doing is decreasing demand, which is then s- slowing down China's ability to keep everybody busy, <laughs> in a way. You know, <laughs> um, and so the kind of common enemy is okay. We'll blame the US because they're not buying our stuff. It probably doesn't going to hold a whole lot of you know versus say like a, a you know a strategic or a military sort of standpoint. Um, I still think it'll work. You think it'll work? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think so too. Yeah. I mean the. the the Chinese mainland is very nationalistic. Mm. It, won't, it won't be worded the way you say it. <laughs> no, it won't. Yeah. No. They've had many years of, of like serious propaganda shoved down their throats. Mm. Like. And little access to, to external yeah, sources okay. to verify it. And, yep, yep, fair and, point. And dissenting views. So I, I think, so in terms of that, so as, as you're looking through each of those, you're sort of saying the tech leadership moving up the value chain, there's sort of an opposite ends. I think the US is probably... Uh, happy to let China do a little bit on that front as long as they're playing fair and not stealing stuff. But the the, the experience to date has been any any time you give them an inch, they'll take you know they'll take a foot type yep. thing in terms of. And so I think there's there's a lot of skepticism on that front. Uh, the the alliance network, you know, they're obviously both trying to build it. Um, and the uh, that that part about it, there is a a uh, a domestic reason to keep the keep keep something bubbling away mm. uh, in the background is is i think core to both which is why we think yep. there's not there's not a fast solution coming to this yep yep yeah. sure thing okay um so how does it all play out so well i mean we're already into tit for tat tariffs and uh, the ball's now back in the chinese court mm. uh having having uh, raised its own tariffs on on uh on the U.S. goods, um, and then immediately had further tariffs from Trump uh, within literally minutes or hours. Uh, so I guess we await, you know, a further escalation from China. Mm. Um, 
uh, Huawei. Uh, you know, that's there's a whole bunch of pending stuff around um, how the US is going to handle that. That's tied up with you know the the uh, broader trade discussions. China wants Huawei, you know, kind of off the banned list before they'll talk. The US has no interest in doing that at all. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's probably a, a, a short part for, I guess, what we mean by Huawei is actually a little bit of a microcosm of, of the rest of the economy where uh, the US are uh, putting the clamps on Chinese companies that are trying to expand externally mm. to say, well, if you haven't been playing by the rules, we're going we're gonna to clamp, clamp down on you. And, yeah, it's a great example isn't it, to make. Yeah. So th- there are plenty of other uh, examples out there, but there's um, and there's uh, in Australia, there's we've got ones now a, a mining company next to a, a missile range, and you know discussions about what they've been doing and have they been playing by the rules? And if they haven't been playing by the rules, maybe they need to change. Um, and, and you just go you know right around the world, um, you can go through those, and and there's there's more more than just one example. Mm, okay, yep. sure. Global then, supply chain. And this is the big one, really, uh, where we're seeing day by day companies declare they're pulling their you know, supply chains out of China, mm. um, manufacturing and, and moving them largely to Southeast Asia. Uh, some of it probably goes home to the US, but not a lot. Apple, uh, we had Google declare last night it's moving some production. Uh, but, you know, this will take time, it'll take years. Mm. Um, probably a decade i mean there was a story yesterday in the wall street journal about the mad dash for vietnam uh but you know it's so heated with everyone trying to uh you know redeploy their production to vietnam out of china that uh you know they've got a major kind of inflationary boom going on the ground and it's very difficult to to Mm. get in there because you know it's a narrow entrance with a lot of people trying to get in um, and it's not that big of a country. It's right. not that big of a country, and it's actually not a U.S. ally particularly either. So I'm not sure the risk managers have got that one right, to be honest. <laughs> but um, you know, I think you can expect that this push of of manufacturing supply chains out of China to continue, no matter what the result of current negotiations. Yep. Um, yep. I think the yep. horse has bolted on that for various reasons. Yep. Well, and it sort of exposed a commercial. Um, point that you know by concentrating all of your supply chain in one country regardless of the country if you know if issues arise at a political level then you you cook your business model in a way don't you until you can figure it out yeah and i do think that china's uh you know pitch to the world of being you know capitalism with chinese characteristics has unraveled Mm. on this you know like it's it is a totalitarian regime yep and when when it comes under pressure its responses tend to be authoritarian. Mm. And so, you know, the freedom of movement um, that you need in a liberal economy can disappear overnight yep. at the whim of, you know, the Politburo or indeed the Emperor. Um, and, so, and some of the highlight that highlighted by you know, places like where, um, you know, the US uh, asked Canada to arrest a Huawei executive mm. and uh, in response, China uh, arrested a, a number of Canadian yeah, uh, business people and, and diplomats. Yeah, and so for, if you're a Canadian company in particular, and you're you know you're just about to go over pop over to China to tour some provinces to, to look at setting up your new factories, you yep. might just have a second choice, second think about it and go yep. well from yeah maybe from the company perspective it might still make sense, from but from a personal perspective it doesn't. Yeah, and I don't want to send any more of my my staff over either. So that's right. We'll, we'll I mean, us. the FT was discussing the, the deployment of a a corporate social credit score yesterday as well in china now i mean in some ways you could see that's not a bad idea (laughs) but certainly it's a better idea than doing it for individuals Mm. but it is very much you know an expansion of this autocratic power Mm. um, around what is you know mooted as a liberal market uh, when it's not and i mean they're they're simply they're saying look this is just a social a corporate credit score, if you like, to to keep you um, in line with regulation, but it's very easy to see it being used or misused for you know um, forcing companies to toe the line on whatever it might be. Mm. It could be, it could be right. Hong Kong, or it could be could be you know okay. the arrest of one of your executives. It could mm. be could, licenses to do. It could be anything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it'd be very easy to misuse. So I mean, that that you know, it looks like China's jump jump the shark. Yep. On this. Okay. Uh, boycotting of US goods. Yeah, well, this is a nasty one. 
This is another escalation that's probably already underway, but it's obvious that you could create a moral panic in China uh, about US US power interference, um, holding China back, you name it, mm-hmm. um, and get boycotts underway um, on on um, you know US goods or you know any kind of foreign goods mm. um, that are being sold in China. Um, the, 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 the main sort of imports of um, or exports of the US into China are primary production, am I right? Soy, soy and sort of some... And, and advanced technology. <laughs> yeah, and IP. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, obviously it's a big market for stuff that's made in country. Mm. Uh, you know, they sell... Well, they used to sell a lot of iPhones in China. They're, they're falling away pretty quickly. And where luxury is, goods. Yeah, luxury goods. I mean, lots of... Lots of stuff that is Western IP, but manufactured in China. Yep. It has Western brands. Yep. Um, uh, and so rare earths, we think this one's a bit over-egged, but it's obviously China's monopoly on, on uh, rare Relation. earth commodities. <laughs> um, yeah, well, it's it's competitive com- com- advantage com- is, is... Commodity you know, production, not, not the commodities themselves. Commodity uh, yes, production. Yes, yes, yes. Yep. And so, I mean, various components of, of the Western alliances are... are sort of working on getting around this already. There's a, a story yesterday about the Pentagon doing a deal or trying to do a deal with um, some Australian miners to get rare earths uh, under here, mm. underway here. Um, but I, I just don't think that this will be a huge deal. It's just a case of building out the production elsewhere. Mm. Uh, it, it, could, it could be a short-term... Yeah. Uh, it could be a short-term issue. Mm. For But having said that, it's... Um, it's a card I think that China would be very foolish to play because all of a sudden, if they play that, then then the whole supply chain just goes out the door. Mm. Like if everyone says, "Well, if you're prepared to to cut off the rest of the world to you know for a political whim, yep, then uh, we don't want to stick any of our supply chain with you." Yeah, yeah. And so, sorry, I feel like we glossed over the rare earth sort of topic a little bit. Do you want to just quickly run in uh, running yeah. what what a so, rare earth is? And- so, so rare earth, um, rare earths actually aren't very rare they're actually pretty abundant uh what's rare is countries that are willing to um host the refining of the rare earths into usable materials because they're so toxic okay and and and, uh china tends to have less stringent um uh epa controls controls. (laughs) and and that means that it's very attractive to do rare earths in china it's been very attractive yeah and so they've They've been they end up being the lowest cost provider because ever you know if you're in the US you have to abide to mm. not not poisoning your local citizens. Uh, in China it hasn't been as much of an issue, and so um, you basically close down rare earth production and you know right oh, around sweet. the world. Yep. And so yeah, and and now because China's got all the rare earths, they're they're talking about and and you know touring factories with the, with the G to sort of suggest to, to let people know hey we could just turn these off yep. and and these get used in in everything you know phones TVs mm. communication devices you know right around the world so so there is very much they could certainly cause some some serious issues in the short term but that's to us seems very much cutting your nose off to spite your face mm. it's mm. i think they they'll it's particularly crazy to to take this trade war into commodities for china because I mean they they are far more dependent on commodity imports than any commodity exports. Yep. Yeah, so um, it's really bonkers for them to give this idea mm. to anyone else. You know, I mean you you just don't want to go this way. Like blockading commodities is a very bad idea for everybody. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and finally, their China devaluation. Yeah, well, this is a big one that's underway again. Obviously, they're they're devaluing the yuan uh, reasonably swiftly now um, and it's going to continue i guess so you know that puts all sorts of pressure on um, many different things um, mm. it's very deflationary for the world uh, it um, obviously is a big competitiveness blow for all all sorts of different emerging markets um, although that's going to be offset by the shift of supply chains out of china um, it's extremely negative for the australian dollar mm-hmm. the two track one another um, and obviously, it's um, thumbing its nose directly at uh, Trump's tariffs, and so it's it's prodding the bear in that that sense. So it's another escalation, um, definitely. Mm, okay, uh, very good. And so we'll wrap around now into um, some risk scenarios. So we've yeah. already uh, seen a couple. Uh, we can yeah. strike so a couple we, off the list. So we, you know, <laughs> we we put this up uh, a year or so ago, mm. um, just sort of going through. You know, here's here's your uh, here's your gradually getting worse. 
stage. And the, the first part was a quick resolution, which we sort of gave up on last year. So I think we've always had the view that um, you know, it is bigger than, than, than the headlines. And, that, and so the quick resolution would have, mean, would have meant you know, equity markets back off and running. Uh, the, the, the next sort of positive effect might have been sort of twin Keynesian booms in that you saw the US with with a big infrastructure spend and China with big infrastructure spend trying to trying to sort of uh, keep their own economies going to mm. and, and both of them creating demand for the rest of the world and and that doesn't look like it's happening. Yep. So we've, we've crossed that one off the list. Might might come back, but we we don't think so. I'll just add in particular. I think China is very deliberately not stimulating mm. uh, and I think that that's clearly a strategy to to hit the US economy uh, and and try and upset uh, Trump's re-election mm, okay. um, but I, I think they should just look at how they manage their own polity to figure out how dumb that is because mm, mm. uh, it goes back to the whole external enemy argument etc mm. um, so uh, crossing that one off is quite a big deal for Australia because we don't see any imminent Chinese stimulus as a rescue for falling bulk commodities yep yep great yes. point yeah and so now we're in these second which is where we think it'll probably sit is in this escalating tariffs and outright sanctions we think it'll sit in between those two but if things get, you know, if things could easily get worse than that, and and you could start seeing the proxy wars and, and the potential of a real war, so that there, our base case was was we'd be sitting somewhere in this escalating tariffs and outright sanctions part, and that's where we that's where we find ourselves now. Uh, so the issue is things could get worse. Um, so, uh, but we're not expecting that as our base case at the moment. Yeah, okay. Yep, sure thing. Something to keep an eye on. And I noticed there we've got um, proxy wars as second to, to real, second last to real wars. And mm. uh, it sort of somewhat maybe draws us into our next topic. So the third horseman being Hong Kong. Yes, it does. Um, so, I mean, you, this one's not specifically a proxy war. Um, it's more. Uh, Although China is claiming in, in some they, circles that it yes, is. Yes, they are. And, yeah. and in fact, you know, it has become inveigled with the trade war. Mm. Uh, increasingly, you know, Trump has made reference that the, to the two being connected, mm. um, but he's probably just using that as leverage. Um, I don't think that Trump would have any compunction in selling Hong Kong out if he could get a, you know, spectacular trade deal. Mm. Um, but in terms of this kind of being the third horseman of, you know, the apocalypse, as it were, as a possible looming global recession, uh, this is another issue that's been getting worse, not better. Um, this chart that we've put up here seems to capture you know what's transpiring on the ground rather well from the economist it's basically just a breakdown of ages uh you know demographic uh, blocks if you like in hong kong uh, and those who don't identify themselves as hong kongese versus yeah. chinese uh, and the movement in the large sort of uh, larger blocks from you know youth through to uh, 50 uh, is clearly towards independence mm. uh, and in the youth it's skyrocketing um, and it, what's interesting perhaps about this chart is that it's not it's not something that's you know it's obviously going parabolic at the moment but it's actually been climbing very strongly really since Xi Jinping came to power mm. which you know kind of tells you that you know the the, the honkies uh, have been looking at this for a long time um, they had their 2014 umbrella um, revolution uh, was a sort of um, dry rehearsal, if you like, for now. Um, but you know, all my contacts in Hong Kong and whatever are basically telling me that um, this is the do or die moment mm. for Hong Kong, um, and that's you know, like there's all this incredible kind of foment in on the internet in Hong Kong around this, which is coordinating the protest. It may be leaderless, but it's not directionless, and it's mm. got this um, this really kind of fascinating uh, online um, network, if you like, that's being that's driving it. Not unlike some of the the stuff we saw in the Arab Spring and other kind of popular movements. I was going to say there's there's a few correlations you could draw <laughs> there, to the Arab there Spring. There are, yeah. Um, and and you know this is this coordination of communication is why you know, for instance. Over the last few weeks, we've seen the protests kind of push towards dangerous violence, mm. which could have alienated kind of middle classes and more conservative peoples. Yep. And then within a week, bang, nearly 2 million people were on the streets, totally peaceful. Yep. You know, like extraordinary shift when 
when this movement's sort of sensed it might be losing the narrative and then snap back to like peaceful protest. It was like extraordinary, mm, you know, mm. and it's leaderless. So anyway. But, um, and just for anyone who's listening in and not looking at the charts or actually even just draw out in particular this, um, what I found fascinating with these ones is not, I mean, it's certainly the rise is important and everything. Um, so it's risen, say, from 2010 from, from about 40% to closing in on 80% for, for 18 to 29s. Um, but what's interesting is you're actually almost at zero for who identify as Chinese for both that category and the 30 to 39 category is now li- almost at zero. So you're either yeah. identify as Hong Kong or mixed. Um, nobody, yeah. whereas there was significant parts of the population w- would identify as Chinese. Um, mm. Look, my source is on the ground are telling me like that it's literally reached the point now where you don't want to speak Mandarin in Hong Kong. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like... If you speak Mandarin and someone will start looking at you on the street and, you know, suspiciously. Yeah, right. You know, like, and this is, this is creating like almost civil war like atmosphere where you, you know, you imagine a, a wedding, mm. right? Various generations come together. Some of them only speak Mandarin. Yep. You know, and so it's, and then you've got the youth that are like full blown going a different direction. I mean, it's, it's out of the box, this. It's out, you know, the genie's out of the bottle. And um, so, well, and that, do you want to flick to the next chart? Because that's, that's the interesting part now is that the real key to, to whether this keeps going or not is, is going to happen in the next two weeks because we're back to, well, maybe not, maybe the next two months. Um, university holidays go back and that's sort of been a bit of a, a line in the sand. A lot of people have been going, well, yeah, this, it's a summer fling, you know, something to do. These guys are all bored. <laughs> bored kids. Bored yeah. kids. Um, yeah. Summer holidays. Once that's over, they're going to go back to uni. The weather's been good too. The weather's been good. Yeah, that's right. It'll all, it'll all die away. And so that's that's the, the, the point, as Dave was saying, is that's what happened last time, in a way, mm. in, in the Umbrella Revolution. And they changed, made a few changes and the whole thing died away. Um, one, one side says, well, that's what happened last time. That's, that'll happen again. The other part says, well, that's what happened last time. And they know it was a mistake. <laughs> and they know that if you don't let go, as David said, you know, you don't let go when you've got the, the, the narrative and you've got people active about it, then you'll lose your opportunity for, you know, for five years mm. at least. And maybe forever. It, um, well, yeah. I mean, that's it. The narrative I'm hearing is that this is do or die mm. for the honkies. And the legislation that triggered it, uh, you know, speaks for itself. I guess the extradition laws... Uh, which were basically going you know, to allow uh, the Hong Kong government to deport anyone they liked into the black hole of the Chinese legal system, yeah. such as it is. Uh, and, you know, that was just simply they, they cut the sausage too, too fat and they've triggered this huge pushback. And, you know, where it goes is, <laughs> is really difficult to know. I mean, that, that legislation uh, has, you know, the, the, um, um, the lamb... Um, government mm. has has declared it dead, but it's still sitting on the books, like it hasn't been removed. Mm. And if the protest stopped, it could be passed overnight. Mm. Mm. Right, it's still there. And then there's the other four demands that that most of which are actually pretty reasonable, but then they kind of escalate all the way up to kind of democracy, where you know that's obviously going to be a non-starter. Um, but um, you know, at this point, there's been little or no um, um, movement or budging on the part of the Hong Kong government. Um, <clears throat> obviously, Beijing is is the one pulling the strings there. Um, are we going to see any? Like, oh, I thought they should have just sacked the government ages ago. Mm. Um, my, my, my mail on, on how this would affect the mainland is that basically they hate Hong Kong. Mm, okay. There's not a lot of risk of this sparking any kind of revolution in mainland China. They don't really care. They actually just see them as rich assholes who, you know, are taking the piss. Mm, okay. Like, we're, we're over here working for the team. What do you think you're doing kind of thing? Um, uh, and so, you know, the um, therefore the communist government may have a free hand in terms of, you know, mainland politics mm. for what it does. But what does it do? My God. You know, like, you can't, you can't send the tanks in. No. Um, you know, some kind of martial law. That's 5,000 troops sitting in Hong Kong. Mm. Um, perhaps, but, I mean, the moment you do that, that's the death of Hong Kong as a financial centre. Yep. Obviously exacerbates everything we've already discussed about supply chains leaving China in the trade war. Mm. You know, it's a moment of... it. I see that as the... Basically, a, 
the end point of Chinese globalisation. Well, and that's an interesting point because we spoke before about the Arab Spring. Is there a, a chance that this could, could fuel a, an Asian Spring where you've got you know Hong Kong and then Taiwan and then any well, other province that sort of borders China that they've well, you know, stuck I, their fingers I, I mean, in over the years? It's clearly booted Taiwan several decades further down the track in terms of one China policy. Mm. Um, whether it leads to an actual Spring, uh, who knows? Taiwan is off the radar yep. for China now for another generation. Mm. Oh, they're very good at planning for the long term and thin slicing their way to victory, uh, and so they go back to doing that. But the 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 prospects of any imminent merging with Taiwan is the major casualty mm. for Chinese strategic policy coming out of Hong Kong. Um, so that's gone, um, but they they still don't have a resolution for what to do in Hong Kong. I, you know, and, and uh, part of the what I've put up there one of those things that parallels with the trade war in that. We feel as if a, a a quick retreat and you know give up some short term and, mm. and, and get, get back to thin slicing would have been the right way to do it, um, but it's 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 a eerie parallel in terms of saying I think yeah. whether there's whether it's hubris and whether it's saying no no this is our this is ours we, you know we're gonna we're gonna meet force with force and and so that's the part where um, yeah both of them to us say that. Uh, things are going to keep getting the way it's going. Yep. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe maybe the Ministry of State Security can get in there and arrest enough people, mm-hmm. undermine it, divide the movement. I mean, who knows? But, I mean, it looks, you know, what it's comprised. It's not just students. Like, it's, it's accountants. Mm, yeah, that's <laughs> you, right. You know, yeah. like, well, it's accountants. If, if, yeah. <laughs> there are accountants marching on the streets <laughs> of Hong Kong. Like, it's... Yeah. It's it's yeah. moved up the value chain. When, mm. when you've got 2 million out of 7 million marching, yeah. it's yeah. pretty broad-based. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it yeah. is. So, Absolutely. So, so outcomes, I mean, I just really don't know. Um, but it does appear that it's a, a catch-22 that is likely to get worse. Um, it could definitely exacerbate the trade war. I mean, if they were forced to go the route of at least martial law of some sort, uh, for a short period of time, it's definitely going to make the trade war worse. It will certainly align Europe much more closely with the US. Mm. Um, it will end Hong Kong as any kind of viable financial centre and leap leaping point into China for managing businesses, mm. uh, and will just and accelerate the accelerate, supply chain. Yeah, yep. accelerate the supply chains coming out of China dramatically. Mm. Um, it's just all bad, and they simply do not want to go that way if it can be avoided. But I guess the honkies know this. Mm. Mm, and so got the wedge. That's they do, <laughs> and the timing is impeccable. Yep. yep. Um, maybe the, maybe they get to a deal, but just does not look to be the way the the, well, the, the party thinks, and yeah. certainly not the way Xi Jinping thinks. But mm. It's very tough to negotiate a deal with with a uh, a leaderless a leaderless two million. Rabble. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Saying, well, yeah. you know, what are the demands are is saying, well, yeah, well, the moment you, you, you give like in, to... that might might just cascade into, yeah, yeah we want everything. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So. Interesting. Okay. Right. So um, we'll jump across now to the fourth uh, horseman today, which is oil. Uh, and we've got a chart up here of uh, the oil market balance. Uh, do yeah. you want to just talk us through, through this one? Uh, sure. I mean, I've been worried about oil all year. Um, we're at 55 bucks, you know, well down from where we were last year, um, basically because there's just too much of it, largely mm-hmm. because uh, non-OPEC production has been very strong, and that, again, is uh, is focused in the US. Uh, and what perturbs me particularly is uh, we're coming into the oils, oil's sort of seasonally weakest part of the year, um, coming into Q4 mm-hmm. and then early Q1. Uh, and you know, and this, why, this... sorry, just what and why is that uh, typically the the down point in the cycle? I yeah. actually don't know. I pre- it's... Presumably, it's because um, winter in the north, dry... yeah. summer in the north, rather. Yeah, it's, it's and the demand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the driving season, as they call it in the US. Yes, that's yeah. right. Is a large part of it. Okay, um, yeah. and and so you know, the supply balance is tipping towards glut. It's already fairly glutted, but it's going to get worse as we go into the end of the year. Um, and the reason this is a potential horseman is when when oil crashes, um, then it's it's the the principal line of contagion from the global economy into the U.S. economy these days, because you know traditionally falling oil was great for the U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know 
boosting spending power for consumers, etc. And that's still true in part. But these days, it's such a key component of their capital expenditure with shale that that's actually a greater downside. And moreover, um, the shale oil business is run out of the junk bond market. And so you get a dislocation in junk bonds when oil falls, and then that starts to threaten broader spreads, and that upsets the stock market. Uh, and at that point, you start to draw in the consumer via the wealth effect. And we're, so we've seen this happen a couple of times through big short oil shakeouts, in particular 2015, where it really rocked um, the global economy. We got through it okay, mm-hmm. but the economy is much slower now. And obviously, with these various other stresses, if we were to get an oil crash at this point, um, I think it's a potential trigger for much wider destabilisation. So there has been some better news in the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to flip to the next chart, um, the, the US uh, uh, rig count has been falling since we, since we dropped down towards um, the mid-50s. It's uh, a r- remarkable fall-off, uh, isn't it? I guess it, it's, just, uh, it's not quite as big as it looks, but it's decent. Mm. Um, yeah, the axis on the chart. Yeah, oh, yeah it's the left chart. Yeah, that's true. But you'll see production hasn't fallen. It's actually still still very high. Mm. Um, that's in part owing to them getting better at it and more efficient. Yeah. But also the the broader US production story is quite strong coming out of the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. And, stuff. and it's been interesting actually. There's just this latest reporting season. There's been a number of uh, big US companies that have been talking about. So so. Uh, shale oil is very new, so it's only been um, it's been the technology around for for ages, but the actual the uh, the real drive of it's really been the last ten years, mm. and so productivity has been dramatically increasing over that time frame. Just as they, people get better and, and more used to it, and, and knowing what they can do, and just in the last reporting season, though, we've we've seen a number of companies, none of the big companies, talking about um, not quite getting the the same the the same increases they're expecting, and about now whether they're their wells are actually getting too close together, and and so might be a question about whether that productivity gains keep going. It's it's very much at early very early days in that, but mm. um, to to date, you know, that just because the the rig count is falling because the rigs that are coming on now versus five years ago mm. are, are a lot more efficient and, yeah, and they're actually getting a lot more oil out. So, you know. I guess the point here is that the oil price could stabilise if US production starts to fall off. Mm. But of course, the flip side of that is the US is being drawn into this already, you know, where its production is going to start to fall mm. and the oil rig drop and capex fall off, etc. cetera. Um, uh, you know, it's obviously a much broader story, oil. Um, uh, but as the global economy slows, so does oil demand mm-hmm. and the IEA has been consistently rounding down its forecast for demand so we've got to got this potential supply shakeout chasing you know falling demand not clear which one will win china, there's another dimension which is china is illegally importing heaps of iranian oil mm. so and then there's the trade war dimension to that where it's displacing us oil which is then being shoved into the wider global market um, and so some of the dimensions that were supporting oil, it's just, that was, you know, like which was the end of Iranian production or supposedly pulling that out owing to sanctions, is not happening. Mm. Um, you know, and then there is Venezuela and its structural problems and it's falling away. But, you know, as that, that other chart showed, on balance it looks like we're still headed into more glut from okay. oil, not less. Uh, and so I'm worried that that could by year-end trigger... Uh, volatility. Mm, okay. Yeah, sure. All right, very good. So um, so that's our four horsemen. Um, we'll now zoom into the apocalypse being global <laughs> recession. So <laughs> end on a high note, but anyway. Um, so I've got here a, a quick uh, equation there. Weak economy plus external shock equaling global recession. Uh, yeah. So there's, there's two parts I wanted to hit on for this. Is The first part is... Uh, the economy is weak at the moment, and I've, just, I've got two charts up just showing uh, global PMI surveys, which is a purchasing ma- uh, manufacturing PMI, which is a purchasing uh, manager, and just it's it's trying to get forward looks at, at what's going to happen. And both of those are sort of back to uh, close to ten year lows in terms of the uh, in terms of where they're where they're back to. So certainly certainly weak. Um, one of them's got one of them is an output, and the other one's the um, yeah, it's a global survey. So. So you've got this weak economy. Uh, if you get any of the above ones we've just spoken about, either the four, four horsemen hit, that comes into this weak economy and that's probably enough to, to, to shove it over the edge. 
The other factor I wanted to raise is on the next chart, which is uh, the amount of corporate debt out there. Mm. And just in terms of measuring it versus GDP, uh, because it gives you a better better feel for how large it is because debt tends to grow over time with inflation and, and income. But uh, we're back at previous high, or back and above previous highs in terms of the, the debt to GDP. And so what we're saying is there is... global GDP? Global, uh, de- global GDP? That was the that one is the US one, but it's pretty similar. Um, you can use it as where, a, where, yeah. where you, wherever you look. Yeah, yeah. sure. Okay. So, um, so the issue is uh, you have a vulnerability, you have a weak economy, and you have an external shock. Is that that can very easily um, come together into yeah apocalypse of a, of a recession, and 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 could be a big one if if the wrong things happen in terms of the uh, corporate debt markets. Mm, okay. Sure thing. So, I mean, obviously, the timing of these things is very difficult because we're talking about a lot of geopolitics, uh, geostrategic stuff, all sorts of different things. Um, but I guess what we are saying is, if you, if you, as Damo says, sum up the context with, uh, you know, these various uh, potential um, political, um, you know, swords of Damocles poised, mm. uh, then it's a very high risk environment. Okay, sure. Yeah. So, so this same type of effect, you know, as as economies are growing and and all, all those same fourth horsemen we're speaking about in a, in a growth market where economies growing, employment's falling, all those other factors, you know, manufacturing is strong means and it's shaken off. You can, yeah, you can ride over one of those. Yeah. And, and so the question is, though, will will one of these be enough to to shake things out? And, and there's a decent chance. To, un- to unpick the blouse, as it were. So um, thanks for that. We'll, we'll, just before we roll into um, our investment outlook, we've just got, got a question here, and I'm mm-hmm. sorry, Dozbotter, uh, for making you wait on this one, but I just wanted to find the right time to fit it in. Um, I've got here MB, uh, and I guess in a way, Nicholas Wealth, are not gold bugs. Uh, so your view now, please. So what percentage of a portfolio should be in precious metals? Uh, and is it not too late to take a position given the recent run-up in either physical or an exchange-traded fund? Uh, thoughts on gold at this point well, in the cycle? I, I might leave you leave the portfolio question to you, Damo, but I can comment on the gold market and its role in today's environment. Uh, it's pretty bullish yep. um, uh, and has gotten more so recently. Um, uh, basically, whenever the Federal Reserve starts to ease, people start to think about gold for a start sure because you know that's sort of suggesting imminent US dollar weakness mm-hmm, mm-hmm. US dollar being the key component into gold value um, that said uh, you know if these shocks transpire we think that uh, the likelihood is that the US dollar will remain a safe haven play mm. in which case gold may take a bit of a battering in a crisis if the US dollar does take off um, but what's happened recently uh, is you know, there's now talk of uh, a sort of U.S. Treasury intervention mm. into the U.S. dollar coming out of the White House. Um, that obviously is based on, you know, uh, the trade war and, and the falling yuan. Uh, now, that adds a much more sort of spectacular upside for gold where it could potentially rise even if the U.S. dollar rises. Mm. Uh, just on the political risk that there may be intervention... You know, then again, you have to consider that there actually isn't all that much they can do unless they're prepared to go very deep. Um, they can jawbone it, they can do bits and pieces around the edges, but really all they could do is tax capital inflows if they want yep. the US dollar to fall, and that would be a major escalation <laughs> of the trade war. And, and if you've gotten that far, then the, probably the whole world is falling apart and the US dollar might go up anyway. Mm. Um so, look, it's very much a risk-reward story. Um, that said, uh, you know, yes, on a, in a medium-term story, narrative, it's definitely bullish because you would think that, you know, as the global economy slows, as these various shocks transpire, if they do, of course, um, then the Federal Reserve is forced to keep coming and eventually that bites the currency. Um, it usually happens post-crisis, mm. as I say. You know, the currency will often spike in a safe haven manner. Uh, but then afterwards, as things settle down, uh, then the US dollar takes a bit of a pounding and the gold flies off. So, you know, I guess that probably amounts to a buy-the-dip story mm. for gold in, in, a, in a macro-narrative sense. Mm, okay. 
and treat cautiously. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't be throwing the entire portfolio at it. Mm. Um, but I might ask Damo what you think. Do you? Well, I'm not throwing the entire portfolio. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> I mean, golf's not a core asset class for us. Yep. Um, we, no. Nucleus, the idea behind Nucleus is that we have, uh, we're sitting with the, the core safe assets, um, large cap equities, you know, both Australian and international, mm-hmm. uh, government bonds and, and cash. And, and they're the assets we, we feel are the safe assets and the ones you, you pretty much want to own through the cycle, but in, in varying amounts. Yep. And then around that is where you then throw in small cap equities or hedge funds or, or gold or, or some corporate bonds or, or whatever your desired sort of flavor of, of investment is. And so we want to, we tend to look at those as, as not being a core holding. We do have a, 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 a chunk of gold now in gold stocks within our I was going to say sort of like a derivative to gold is obviously the equity piece in a gold miner. Yeah, yep. but, but that's a, that's, we don't treat that as a huge part of our portfolio insofar as you know, we're pretty explicit about what we're buying within our portfolio and with the idea that if people want to own gold, then yep. they should be owning it you know, outside that nucleus part and that's a, something they'll, they'll, they'll then trade themselves yep sure uh so so then i'll toss back to david's you know david's views on gold is that you know there's there is some medium term um upside upside to it yep yeah. and, and you get you get really good leverage on the gold price with with gold miners yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 yep, yep. So, Fair enough. i mean the, the, i guess the, the one other factor i didn't mention i, I should have uh, is mark carney stuff at, at jackson hole um you know it's uh it's quite a thing to have leading central bankers discussing the end of US dollar hegemony. Mm. Um, I I don't think it's imminent anyway. I don't think that the US would give it up. Um, certainly not under a, a president that's not, you know, entirely rational. Mm. And, um, and, and what, what, what he was discussing, just to put that in context, was he was talking about pretty much sort of moving back to sort of a Bancor type model, which was yeah. a, you know, Keynesian uh, from... Global currency, sort of. It was post World War Two, yeah, I think, just after, yep, so yep. whatever it is, seventy years ago, uh, which was basically you get a basket of international securities, and rather than everything priced in in US dollars, they get priced in Bancor, which is basically a you know fifty percent US dollars and thirty percent euros, and and you know. Mm-hmm. But but it's the the key part to that is is making sure you've set up all the lines with the central banks that you can actually money can funnel into that, and people can actually you know get exposure to to it yeah. without being. Without having currency controls, it's a tra- mm. it's actually a terrific idea. Like it, mm. it works in theory brilliantly. Where once a year they all get together and mm. like rebalance reserves versus mm. um, various external imbalances, and mm. so it it would take an awful lot of volatility out of the global economy. But but I mean that's kind of neither here nor there. Well, if you, and like, if you, it's what matters is the geopolitics of it. And, well, if you fo- if you follow any of uh, Eric Eric Townsend's uh, material, uh, recent stuff, he's uh, he's got his bets on Facebook's Libra, um, perhaps being uh, being backed as the the oh, new oh, the oh, banker of the, well, the new world. Yeah. Well, that's that's a good joke. <laughs> So if you're listening, Eric, there we go. Um, all right, so we'll jump just quickly across to the uh, the portfolios, Damien, and, and what we're doing in reflection of these things today. Yep, uh, just very much early days. I mean, that the we've really only just seen the start of the, the volatility, and so um, you know we're, we're largely positioned for for quite negative outcomes, and we're not sort of ready. We're not out rushing out there deploying cash, but we certainly do have our, our list of stocks, and we're we're churning a little bit within our portfolios to try and look for um, opportunities where, where stocks get beaten down, and and chance, you know whenever you get a chance to pick up quality stocks at at, re- at reasonable prices. Mm-hmm. So I think the um, volatility is often that case is that what you especially um, in the early days of volatility, you often find that uh, there will be uh, hedge funds or traders who are looking for liquid stocks and they'll be in whatever countries they're in or whatever sectors they're in. And when they, they've decided that's no longer the case because of whatever they've been stopped out, they'll be looking to get out as quickly as they can. Mm, okay. And that often gives you the chance to, to pick up um, quality stocks at, at reasonable prices. So you often see at the start of crises, um, the stocks that fall fast are often some of the big actual quality names because it's each hedge funds or or other asset allocators who are just getting rid of they only ever owned liquid stocks and so that's what they're selling yeah okay and then yep. it's not until uh and then you often see in days following that that some of the the higher priced um gross, less, gross less quality stocks, stocks yep. will, they'll then start to fall as um you know as as the pricing sort of filters through the market 
And right. so if you can use the opportunity in, in early days of crises to to rebalance your portfolio that way, mm. um, yeah, it's often quite helpful for your performance. Okay, fantastic. All right, thanks very much, gentlemen. And uh, a huge topic today, so we've gone a little bit over time, but I, uh, I will uh, run into uh, what's coming up next week. So uh, same bat time, same bat channel at 12.30 p.m. on Thursday the 5th. We have got a secret special guest. Um, so uh, feel free to, to tune in then and check out uh, what we've got in store for you there, Nucleus Wealth Live webinar page as always. Uh, and just a quick note as well uh, for anyone who is interested or has got a, a topic or something they'd like for us to to put up and uh, do some research on and bring to you, please feel free to forward those uh, through to us, the uh, nucleuswealth.com forward slash subscribe uh, if you haven't subscribed as well, uh, just to get that through and we can have a look at that. Uh, also open to, uh, to any other special guests or anything else you'd like to uh, for us to bring forward to you. On that note... Well, that's it for now, and thanks for watching. If you like what you heard today, and you'd like to hear more, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash subscribe, give us your email address, and in return, we'll send you a weekly email with new webinar topics, links for our podcasts, and other news from Nucleus Wealth. I certainly hope you've got something out of today, as I have, and we'll look forward to catching you with the next one. Cheers.